alone could do. And that is what unites us. Because around the throne of grace, around the throne of the gospel, there isn't a line that says North American believers here, South American believers here, Central American believers here. No, we are all one in the gospel. And the gospel unites us. The gospel is what saves us, and the gospel is what keeps us. Because each day, as Jeremiah says, his mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And each day we understand that. We understand the gospel is what draws us to worship. The gospel, if we truly understand it, smashes us face first as we realize I am a vile sinner, but it doesn't leave us there. Immediately we, our eyes cast up to the only hope, which is Jesus. And when we partner together, we are working with global partners to spread that gospel message to the world around us. Because Romans, I mean, Rev, Romans, Revelation, the other R, Revelation 5, 9, we actually get a beautiful picture. We get people out of every tongue, tribe, and nation worshiping around the throne of God. That is where global missions comes in. Because global missions screams out of Revelation chapter 5 that God's word is literally saving people out of every tribe and, na- tribe and nation. That literally means if there's a tribe that does not have the gospel message in there, God is saying, I'm saving people out of there, bring the gospel. How beautiful are those of the feet who bring the gospel news? This is what God says. How will they hear unless they have a preacher? Which literally means if they have a preacher, they will hear. So this is a concept where global mission impact, as we rally around the gospel, And we start to understand the gospel is not just for me to hold on to. It's for me to share. That is what literally led William Carey to the ends of the earth. Knowing that there are heathen that still need to hear. And that is what pursued and propelled him on. Because it was not him that was saving. It was God out of every tongue, tribe, and nation. Now, with that being said, I want to talk about how the Philippian church partnered with Paul in the gospel. Now, Philippians chapter 4 Verse 14 is where we're going to kind of park. So if you want to turn there, but when I took uh, my hermeneutics class in seminary, our professor pounded into us the whole concept of context. Um, Context is very important because if you were to walk into our house one day, you would hear one of our children say to my wife, when are we going to eat mommy? And now there's a problem there. If you're not getting the context, you might think we're cannibals, because when are we going to eat mommy, as well as not knowing the punctuation in there, when are we going to eat mommy, all right, changes the whole concept of the whole context of the statement, all right? That is why context is, they pound it as context is king, and here's the way context works. You get the context of the chapter that it's in, that's the context right there. Then you get the context of the book. Then you get the context of the whole New Testament picture. And then you get the concepts of the whole canon, where it stands in the Bible. So in order to make my professors happy, let's go back to Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to work... I'm just doing We won't go that far. We're actually going to go to Acts chapter 16. If we did that, we might be here for a while. So let's go to Acts chapter 16, where we actually see the Philippian church starting. Now, for those of you who were here last week and actually remember, can remember all the way back, Pastor Chuck went through a little bit of a breakdown of the Philippian church. The Philippian church starts in actually um, Acts 16, verse 11. We see a really, really neat, interesting uh, lady that gets saved. Um, The lady that gets saved is actually this lady named Lydia. And we see here that God opens the eyes of Lydia. And we see this... She's actually a a seller of purple going on. 
And in this uh, cellar of purple here that we see, the interesting part too is the cool part as this cellar of purple, she is miraculously saved. And then we move to the next part over here as we're trying to get the Bible thing to stop playing. Um, I think someone hit play by accident. But as we see this play out, the next person that gets saved is this girl who's a slave girl who is demonically possessed. And the only thing that her skill level was good at was telling the future because of the demon that was in her. All right, She gets saved. She's not even named. She literally is called a slave girl. And you're, you're left with that going, okay, um, a nameless girl is the next one to be added into this church. So we have a businesswoman, a nameless girl who now, we don't even know if she had any skill level to do it. Like, what was her job occupation? Because now when she has been saved, the Bible doesn't tell us. Paul gets thrown into prison. While he's in prison in Philippi, you actually get a jailer that gets miraculously saved and his household. Now, if you were to try to write down a group of people that you would want, if you're going to start a church in a pagan, hedonistic world, you probably would not take a lady who's really good at selling purple, a nameless slave girl, and an ex-jailer or a jailer. I mean, I would almost think like the jailer's skills with like interacting with each other. I mean, I don't know jailers that well, but I would not think that they're pretty high on the, you know, we're just really good at people, you know, pleasing and things like that, especially a Roman jailer, if you know anything about the way the Romans treated the people that were in prison. But these three people, most unlikely people, are going to start a church in Philippi that Paul is going to write back to and literally have nothing negative to say. Now, if you want to find a church that Paul's got some issues with, it's the Corinthian church. But the church in Philippi, he kept, oh, he just poured out praise upon praise about this church that started in the most unlikely place, in the most unlikely means. That should give us hope. I don't know if any of you are selling purple or if any of you are jailers or anything like that, but if he can use them to be partners with him in the gospel, that means he can also use us. And so this is the part that we're trying to get through to, in my own life, in my own way, because here's something we know about the Philippian church. They were incredibly poor. They did not have a lot of financial resources. They also were under continual persecution. Yet God is going to use them mightily. So Philippians chapter 4, verse 14. Now that we see this is this group of people that he's writing to, I'd like to spend some time here right now breaking down how they actually helped Paul. The first point we're going to see in verse 14, this proactive helping of Paul. Verse 14 says, and it was kind of you to share my trouble. All right, this is a proactive idea. When we think of the word trouble or affliction that some of your texts may have, this actually means you would take an olive, when they would say, and you would inflict pressure on it to break the olive to get the juice or the olive oil out of it. And so when Paul is using this term affliction or trouble, this is the concept he's talking about. He literally was in great, great angst. This idea that he was getting smashed and stuff was literally just pouring out of it. I just can't take this. And guess what the Philippian church did? They proactively shared in his suffering. And you're like, well, what does that mean? How do I share in someone's suffering? Well, the best illustration that I could come up with as I sat there and go, is there any time in my life I felt like I was sharing in someone's suffering? And 
I have a close friend who was in Afghanistan. He has been in there recently. This is right around the time that the ISIS world was just starting up in the world again, and things were becoming uh, pretty difficult. And uh, his wife uh, was coming by. They were, she lived in Michigan at the time, and she was coming up because my friend was from Wisconsin, and they were, she was staying with us for a couple of days, waiting for him to come back on a quick leave in between his, uh, I think it was a year and a half long stint. And he was coming back for three weeks. But before he was coming back, he had to go out one more time. And he was in the Air Force, and he was actually an Air Force guy that had, would join with the special forces when they would drop them in different areas, different mountain areas, and he would call in air attacks so the Air Force could talk to the Air Force type of deal. And when he signed up for this, we didn't really understand what was going on, how, you know, how dangerous it would be, but we got that after he had been there. And on the heels of her staying with us, he was really, my friend was really shaken to the core because he had a really close friend who was a really strong Christian man. He had about three or four kids, really on fire for the Lord, got picked off by a sniper. And it shook my friend to the core because in his little world, you know, Christian men survive, unchristian men don't. You know, that's like the world that he was thinking. And all of a sudden he's like, if he goes down, like me could do the same thing, and it bothered him. And his wife was carrying this, and she's sharing this with us, and we're waiting for him to call that night because he was going to get, when he got back from his last little stint, he was going to call and tell us he made it back safe, he'll be coming in a couple of days, and we were all waiting. I can guarantee you when we prayed that night around the supper table and we prayed that night in our family, we were sharing in her suffering because I still remember she was sitting by her phone just waiting And we're sitting there, you know what, we turned on a movie to try to buy the time, but no one's watching the movie. We're all thinking about what? Is when's he going to call? When's he going to call? We were joining with her. But you know how we could join with her? We knew her situation. And we learned enough about them to invite her into our lives and get to know them. We didn't say, we'll think about you on the 4th of July when we think about patriotic things. We didn't say we'll pray for you one Sunday a week, when we, one Sunday a month when we do our missions conference. It was an ongoing, proactive thought process that, our, that didn't leave our thoughts. I mean, anytime her phone would ring or buzz, we'd be like, oh, no, it's just a text. Oh, you know, and we would live that way because we were sharing in her situation. This is what Paul means when he says, you shared in my troubles. It Literally, you took them on as your own. Then we get to the next point, intentionality. Verse 15, we see, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. They were intentional. They did not go to a missions conference and said, we'll see what all the other churches are doing, and then we'll join them. They actually said to Paul, you're going, we're going to enter in even if no one else does it. We didn't sit around and wait. They actually said, you're leaving, we're going with you. This giving and receiving concept. It was saying that, listen, we're not, we're not just going to say to you, all right, we'll just send you stuff, don't worry. It was a back and forth fellowship. They were intentional. It was something that they actually planned to do, and they did it. Now, if you guys are like me, which is scary if that's the case, you took your bulletins last week after Pastor Chuck talked about the cousins and gave us their prayer request and their address. And you were like, yeah, we should write them letters. And you probably folded it up 
Like I did, I was, the joke is every fourth one of you drops it on the floor, shoves it underneath the, uh, where the hymn books are. But the, for those of you who actually took it, you shoved it in your Bibles and said, that's a great idea. And then what? Forgot about it. And it may even still be there in the same spot where you put it. So if we're talking about a missional church is intentional, meaning we don't just talk about things, we actually do them. One of the things that has really been on my heart is actually doing these things. So what I did this week, since the cousins were last week, I actually got three envelopes, and I paid for the po- Well, I didn't pay for the postage. The church paid for the postage. And I wrote on for you a mailing address to the cousins. Now I'm asking you, since we're going to be an intentional church, not a church that just talks about sending them, I have three letters here. I gave out six other ones in the services. It's the last three that I have. I'd like three volunteers to write them a letter. And just raise your hand, the first three that I see. All right, one, two, three. And I'll come down and give it to you to cause the video people issues. Anybody else in this neck of the... All right, there you go. Now my prayer is that we just, it doesn't just stop there. Because obviously writing a letter is just the tip of the iceberg. It's that giving and receiving back. And I pray that this is just a small step. Because I'll be honest with you too, I haven't written a letter yet either, even though I've been working on it, and this is on my list of things I actually do. Because I have to be intentional about it. Because guess what? If I'm not intentional about it, letters just don't get written by themselves. Communication just doesn't happen by themselves. The church in Philippi just not, did not just sit back. They were intentional. Now the third point. They were ongoing. Verse 16. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once. And again, here again, Paul is not with them. Paul is literally in a different location. All right? He's in Thessalonica. Do you understand that? Like he's not in Philippi. He's in a totally different town. Most of us, if you're like me, because I can be stingy every so often, would say, whose job is it to take care of Paul right now? The Thessalonians, of course, because where is he? In Thessalonica, you like, we would go, well, let them take care of him, right? No. The Philippian church broke through all of those, as I would call it, man-made little structures that stop us. And they said, you know what? We're going to keep giving even when you're not ministering with us because we are partakers in the gospel together. So when you're sharing the gospel in Thessalonica, we're there with you. And you notice he said it wasn't just one time. It was again and again. To the point where, again, remember, this is a poverty-stricken church, and they're going, we just can't wait to give. And notice, I want to be real quick here. The gifts that they're giving to are not just financial, because the next point, which I'm going to kind of try to mesh these together, next point you're going to see this guy here mentioned, Epaphroditus. They sent someone with the gift. It wasn't just like, hey, I'll write you the check so you leave me alone. It was, we're actually going to be proactive and make sure it gets there. Because the fourth point is this holistic approach, because we see that in verse 18. Verse 18 says, I have received full payment and even more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. The part that we see here, they did not just 
say, all right, we'll send you some money. Now, if you know anything about the Roman world at that time, the Roman world traveling was dangerous. Paul is you. Paul will give you the laundry list of all the things he was in trouble, in peril in the sea, in peril on land, in peril in here, in peril in there, let alone traveling with money. So when Epaphroditus is ready to go, it's, it's dangerous even enough traveling with money nowadays, let alone back then. Epaphroditus is realizing Paul's ministry is important. I'm going. And we know in Philippians chapter 2, Epaphroditus is actually going to get sick to the point of almost death. Because obviously when you're traveling, there's a lot that can happen. But Epaphroditus and the church in Philippi said, we care not just by word only, but we're going to actually put feet to our care. And they send Epaphroditus so they could actually minister to Paul in all the ways that Paul's Paul's needs are to be ministered. And now Paul, in response to all of this, almost breaks forth in a praise. Paul is going to say here in verse 19 and follows, It was a fragrant offering, this gift. This gift was acceptable and pleasing to God. Now, this term fragrant offering, this fragrant idea, literally comes from the time period of when we had the temple and the tabernacle going on. And in the temple itself, right before the Holy of Holies, right before the veil, was the altar of incense, where it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what they offered on the altar of incense, but they offered incense. And the symbol of incense is actually going to carry with it as the incense was burning those smell the smell of incense is going to go up and it is going to fill the nostrils of God and that symbolized the prayers of the saints as the saints prayed that came up and it was a pleasing aroma in God's nostrils here's the part that as I was trying to mull this over incense now has burning of incense in homes is kind of a negative side effect if you are familiar with any of the incense thanks to the hippies and all that culture the only thing that in my mind is I enter into the world of smell concept when I come into our home and my wife is cooking bacon and the moment I step into the room and it just and I go oh it's going to be good tonight whatever it is because bacon makes everything great uh, that smell of that bacon just I mean it's almost like I have a hard enough time not just smiling because I like the smell of it that here is the way God is viewing our same our prayers When we pray, it is like a fragrance in his nostrils where you get the sense of God just taking in a deep breath saying, I'd love to hear the prayers of my people. This is what Paul is saying. This is what that gift was. This gift was so pleasing to God. It was like, "Ah, here we go. Thank you. And this is what Paul is saying. And he's saying, because you have overwhelmingly supplied my needs, God will supply yours as well. And notice the Philippian church isn't doing this to like, hey, so if I give something here, God will give me something back. It was, no, we're just giving because we can't not stop give. When I think of that concept, I think of when uh, Paul and uh, John, not Paul and John, Peter and John were actually in the temple and they healed the, um, the blind, the beggar. And when they healed the beggar, the, the, the major Ruling authorities of the people at the temple at the time told them, basically, spiritually speaking, shut your mouth. And you know what they said? We can't help but speak of the gospel. Like, it's overflowing because I can't be silent about this. You know, and so if we truly get that, if we truly understand the gospel itself, and we see missionaries moving out into strategic locations Should we not as a church just be overwhelmed by God? I cannot stop but helping because why would I not help? I'm a partner with you. 
Just like me sitting in my living room at that time, when I saw my friend's wife sitting there, it would have been ridiculous for me to go, I don't care. No, I, because why? I'm invested in their life. Why are we missional focused? Because we're invested in the gospel, which calls us then to be invested in our missionaries' lives. Now, one thing too, though, that Paul is going to speak about the Philippian church, go back to Philippians chapter 1, verse 19. And we're going to see here, Paul is going to mention two things, and then Paul is going to write probably some of the most richest, most of them, I don't know, I think Grant would correct, but the richest of all scripture that in my own life has started to shape and mold my own life. Verse 19, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, what caused him to pen those words? Notice verse 19, because through your prayers and the Spirit's power, and then he can pen, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I'm immediately, when I was reading that text, I'm immediately brought back to the story of Esther. In the story of Esther, she's nervous to go before the king because if you went before the king in an unworthy manner or the king didn't really want to see you, he could put you to death. And the Israelite people that time circle up, they fast and they pray, and Esther, with prayer power and prayer support, goes before the king and she actually says these, this line, which I encourage you, if you want to look it up, it's really interesting. She says, and if I die, I die. I mean, really? Like... I mean, I mean, in my own mind, I can say that, but like, am I really meaning this? Because this is what Paul is saying. If I die, gain. And if I live, gain. Why can he say that? Because he had prayer support and he had the Holy Spirit's power. He noticed both. So, when we think of missional care, we really need to truly, truly grasp the fact that prayer is the battle that we fight. Before I get there, though, I want to be clear because there's something we miss. My wife and I were actually driving to go pick up our kids at camp. And as she was driving to pick up her camp, she came across this blog, and the blog title is How to Care for Our Missionaries. And I'm like, hey, I, I know some guy that's speaking on that this weekend. And so she read it to me, and it started off by saying this. And after when I first heard the first line, I was like, boy, this guy's really, really, you know, wow, he's deep. He says, missionaries are ordinary people. And I'm like, oh, well, this blog's going somewhere real quick. But he, but he wanted to hit the point. Missionaries are ordinary people, so you care for them like you care for what? Ordinary people. And in my mind, I'm like, okay, where are we going with this? And he starts going, but you know what? They're ordinary people in extraordinary places. All right, and so once you start to get that, the blog is going to keep following through. And I'm going to read to you a couple lines here in this blog that really struck my heart. While their identity may be ordinary, the context of their life is not. The extraordinary call on their life to leave the comforts and close community of home and move to a spiritually neutral or even spiritually unwelcome people for the sake of the gospel means that, our ordin- that their ordinary day is not like any ordinary day in Wisconsin. I added that. This means 
we will be extending very ordinary care to people in very extraordinary environments. We will consistently need to ask, how do we love, support, and pray for someone in a high-pressure environment miles and miles away? We need to do that. And Now, here's the thing. I could try to give you a laundry list of things to do, but each missionary is different. And what I'm calling the church to do, and I'm trying to call myself to do, we need to be involved in a way that we understand the needs of missionaries, intimately involved. Not just with, hey, just tell me, you know, real quick here, what you need to do, and then I'm involved. We need to be involved in a way that actually matters, and that's in that giving and receiving The technology that we have now, yes, it dumps a ton of filth into our lives, but it also opens the door to communication that we would never have had. And are we using the gift of technology to the praise and further of the gospel, or are we using it for the further of our own selfish wants and desires? Because here's the battle. When William Carey went out to the mission field, he literally had his funeral on the docks. Because you know what his parents would say? I'll see you in heaven. All right, I I can't even imagine that. If you ever want to read a note, Adoniram Judson wrote a letter to his wife's father-in-law saying, are you willing to let your daughter go with me? And you'll never see her again. But for the sake of heathens knowing God. We don't have that. We have, though, technology. But are we using it to partner with our missionaries, or are we using it so everybody can see my face? I mean, it's, it's, I'm just trying to cut to the chase here. How are we using the gifts of that? Now, that being said, there's a couple final thoughts on this blog here. It ends with this. Since we are called partners in the gospel, we need to remember that happy, healthy missionaries is not the goal of missionary care. A well-cared-for and fully-supplied missionary is our hope, but our greater hope is that by partnering with our missionaries as fellow workers, we will make more disciples together than either of us could ever make alone. By God using our ordinary efforts to build an extraordinary partnership between those who sends and those who go. That's missional care. We work together because we know they need the support. Now, as we've been talking about prayer here, Pastor Chuck laid out in the annual meeting his heart for prayer. And if you want these, they're in the back. They have a little compass in the top corner. And this is literally his heart of where he'd like to see the church start to move. And so he said, this year we intentionally call the people of God to engage in prayer together. While the weekend worship service continues to draw us together to praise and adore Almighty God and hear the word God has for us from the Bible, Let us begin to have our prayer meetings on Tuesday night be the focal point in our spiritual battle. As each week we come together to seek the Lord for his hand of blessing and protection on his church, gathered together for that purpose. So the plan is every Tuesday night, from now until the Lord returns, or until, as they say, the lifetime warranty, whatever that means, until now the Lord returns, we're going to be calling the church to prayer. In the sanctuary here at this time, there'll be some songs, there'll be devotional time, and then at 6.30, we're going to go to war. We're going to be battling on our knees for the cause of Christ. Now, for those of you who are unable to make it, we're going to be live streaming the event. All right? So you can watch online. For those of you who don't have computers, you have a watch at 6.30. 
as though your pastor, I'm calling you. Stop what you're doing and pray. It's one of those opportunities we have to literally go and make war against this world. Because if we truly believe that prayer is what God is working through. Remember he said, my house is not going to be a house of, and he can list the things, of selling stuff or songs or whatever. My house will be called a house of prayer. Because there's one part of missions we need to be clear on. Too many times when Jesus said to Peter, we take this verse in scripture, when Jesus said to Peter, upon this rock I will build my house and the gates of hell will not prevail. Now, when I was little and I would play soldier in battle, never once did I set up the army men and I took the gates of my fort and had them charge my army men, all right? Gates are used to keep things out, right? So if a gate is not going to prevail, what does that literally mean? That we with the gospel are going into enemy territory and taking over, and the gates of hell will not stop us because the gospel has the power in and of itself to break down those gates, And if we truly, truly grasp that, when I am praying for a missionary, I will not pray. John Piper has this great thing about wartime prayer. And he says, so many times we pray, and it's like we go before the throne of God, the almighty God who literally, out of ex nihilo, out of nothing, created, and we say, can I have another towel? Can I have a pillow? And we're like, really? That's what you asked for in the battle, to have a comfortable life. If we truly understand that this life is a vapor, we pray like we're at war. We use our resources like we're at war. We take the Queen Mary like they did in World War II and stripped of all of its luxury and stuck in bunk beds so we could get soldiers to battle. Or are we saying to our own homes, and I'm going to meddle for a little bit here because my wife and I have been battling this too in our own lives. We take the rooms in our homes And we set them up, and we put things in them, and we're like, that's an extra room. Do you understand you have an extra room that you've literally set aside for a TV, for sewing equipment, for, I don't know, toys? And then we have needy people going, I need a place to stay. We're like, we don't have any room because that has my... You're like, what do you mean? You have a room there. You just filled it with stuff. And I look in my own life and go, what am I filling with stuff? Remember that prayer I came around, my calculated service? Oh, this won't hurt too bad so I can serve. Paul didn't go, oh, that place is kind of dangerous. I don't think I'm going to go there. Paul went because he knew the gospel saves. And that's what we are calling. That's what mission.